Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Canadian Story. I would like to thank my good friend, long-lost cousin from another province very far away, Mr. Luke Mason, for getting up at 7 a.m. Pacific time to come on our show. So, Luke, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Zach. I'd get up at any time Pacific time to get on this show. Like I said on the last brief um, interlude I had on here, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me. Uh, Long-time listener, second-time caller. (laughs) Yeah, uh, first-and-a-half-time caller. First-and-a-half. Okay, fair (laughs) enough, fair enough. Um, So because we are cousins, and because we are also cousins with Mr. David Parker, who is currently not here, I would be remiss to not take a moment to point out the fact that Mr. Luke Mason got up at 7 a.m. Pacific for this interview, but Mr. David Parker has failed to rise at 8 a.m. Mountain Time. And uh, yeah. I just want mm. to make that point, just just for the fun of uh, of throwing him a little jab, you know. <laughs> uh, you know what? Um, for one, for finally one time, David missed a podcast. <laughs> anyway, before we got rolling, um, Mr. Mason pointed out to me that there's a question that we don't often ask on the Canadian story anymore, and he expressed his disappointment. Um, so I'm going to ask <laughs> Luke this question, Luke. What is something you love about our country, Canada? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. This feels a little bit um, unfair because I realized I'd ask you this, so I got to think about it a lot. Although, to be fair, your it was one of the original shticks of the Canadian story. So, yeah, back to your roots. That's a very Canadian thing. Uh, I would say, broadly speaking, there's two uh, pillars of what I love about this country. And the first one, I think, is... Um, it's that's uh, natural beauty. So I live in Nelson, British Columbia, which is in the Kootenays. So if you can imagine in your mind's eye, the part of the BC Alberta border, um, the Southeast part of it kind of dog legs East. So BC kind of cuts into Alberta <clears throat> in the Southeast corner of it. And that like little nestled area of British Columbia is called the Kootenays. And that's where I live. And it's honestly just gorgeous here. Like we're in the Selkirk Mountains. There's lakes everywhere. It's such a underpopulated area. So like between Vancouver and Calgary, there's only Kelowna as a city with over 100,000 people. So it's, you know, the you go on the hikes and you see the trees and the flowers and um, the animals and the we have a relatively smokeless summer this year from fires. So fingers crossed there. And I don't know, I, I didn't appreciate it enough growing up. And so when I traveled a bunch and came back here, I'm just kind of staggered at all the cool animals that sometimes just like, it's kind of, it can be scary, but like there's black bears that just kind of walk around Nelson sometime. Um, lots of beautiful deer and elk wild turkeys, even the skunks. I don't know. I just appreciate how kind of relatively untouched by modernity a lot of the Kootenays are in this part of Canada. And there's like a lot of cool history as to why that is. So uh, I just know it's a part of the country that I think fits on a postcard 
you know, like there's a there's a postcard version of all this. Not quite the Rocky Mountains, but um, and then it it like reminds me of um, that line from the Sloan song, uh, the traveling band. All they know is the yellow lines, like on the highway. And so just the road trips around here, um, I'm kind of beautified by uh, our country. And it's funny to think about it because it's like BC is so different from Ontario in its geography and, and topography that you could ask, you could, you could almost like, it's amazing how many different ways a Canadian could describe how Canada is beautiful and describe a scene that's like completely different from a different Canadian <laughs> explaining the scene of the country that they love, you know? And I just feel so blessed that I have the little pocket that I do of uh, Southeastern BC and the other part I love about Canada is actually a nice little segue into um, me bringing up the fact that, yes, David Parker and I, your co-host, is actually the co-host of a podcast we do together called Really True Fiction. And about two years ago, I think it was 2020, so we were like pretty new into the pandemic still. It was July. It was We were recording on Canada Day, and it was um, we were doing Animal Farm by George Orwell. And I remember bringing up in that one that that day it was Canada Day. I was sitting on my front steps playing guitar. I was living in Calgary at the time. Really quickly, Luke, I just want mm-hmm. to pause you. I want you to describe what really true fiction does ah. so that people people can yes. connect the context. So this is a podcast David and I do together uh, for a few years now. And the idea of really true fiction is that we talk about a famous work of fiction, whether it be a book, a movie, TV show, um, graphic novel. We've done a play. Uh, to talk about the real life philosophy, ideas, insights, wisdom, lessons, psychology, anything within it. Um, so it's not like a review podcast, but it's kind of like a springboard to talk about um, what this classic work of fiction can do for real life. And I mean, we've done such a swath of uh, entities like we've done Crime and Punishment and South Park. You know, we've done we've done. Uh, <laughs> Count of Monte Cristo and Superbad and Amazing. East of Eden and Rick and Morty and Atlas Shrugged, and, like just lots of different things, right? Straight, We've done season one of Stranger Things and we've done David Copperfield, the novel by uh, Dickens. So we're omni-genre <laughs> when it comes to, and, and omni-medium when it comes to that. So anyway, we were doing Animal Farm. Um, and I was reflecting on, because when you do Animal Farm, when you talk about that book, you you inevitably, it's the point of the, the novella, you start to think about things like freedom and um, place and how tyranny can be insidious. Um, you, you just can't help it, right? It's, it's in the fabric of that story. And so I was reflecting on the fact that that day I was living in Calgary, I'd been playing guitar on my front stoop and the, our next door neighbor's were a biracial family. The The mom was Filipino. The dad was white. And they have this like nine or 10 year old daughter who's a biracial um, child. And she was like all decked out in her Canada Day regalia. You know, <laughs> like um, she's has face paint on with the Canada flag. And she um, was wearing Canada Day stuff. They were dancing and they were we chatted for a bit and they were going to go to the party and then see the fireworks later, right? So this was a little girl who was like so primed for the fun of Canada Day. And I mean, at at the surface, that's really fun, you know, like playing with the kids. 
But I was thinking about it like Canada is a country that uh, and, and and I will throw in the massive caveat of it's got a lot of sins uh, and a lot of blood on its hands from the indigenous population that is kind of like sadly irreconcilable and really hard to know how to live with and, and how to move on. But that huge chunk aside, um, Canada was confederated by people who so did not look like this little girl, right? They were kind of middle-aged, crusty men, all white-skinned. But the whole point of the country is that the ideas that they enshrined in our country meant that whatever it is, 150 plus years later, this little girl who didn't look like these people and didn't um, wasn't the same gender as them could still live in a country that she found worth celebrating <clears throat> and worth mm, having face paint of, <laughs> to put it kind of cheekily, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And I just think... The more I've thought about that, the more I realize, like, that's really rare. It's not, it's not something that's happened much in human history, let alone right now, where ideas can be an undergirding and underpinning of a country that would allow someone from so superficially the out group of the people who made the country to this many years later be a not just a participant of that country – but a celebratory one. And I think that's something Canada for all of its sins and all of its modern frustrations. Um, I can't help, but love that about this country is that it can be without putting too fine of a point on it. It is that kind of beacon on the Hill for people all over the world. And my argument would be that the reason for that is although notwithstanding some of the modern hits our reputation has taken because of our leadership, uh, I still think the cultural ethos that undergirds our laws and customs is fundamentally pro-human, which allows people from the Philippines, for example, to come here and celebrate Canada Day um, with everybody else. And I think that that's really cool. Absolutely. Um, the, the the past couple of years have been tough on all of us. And it's changed a lot of, for, for a lot of people, it's changed how they view the country. Um, and COVID is the obvious, the, the obvious case study there, but it was within, you know, the, the hustle and bustle and craziness of COVID that all of these graves started getting discovered. And, um, I think that for a lot of people, um, the overall opinion of the country very, uh, very much changed over the past couple of years, but you're right, and it's refreshing to hear again. That is, your story is an example of why one might love our country. Um, how do you think we as Canadians go about putting enough weight on our past sins to not ignore them and to try to make right by them while still understanding and remembering that we do live in a wonderful country and we are blessed to be here. How do we, how do we live those two truths simultaneously? <laughs> do you think? Mm. Well, I think that that's a tricky question because a lot, in my opinion, a lot of the people who would be 
reminding us of all of the past indiscretions and sins of the country aren't necessarily doing it in good faith because they aren't uh, they wouldn't be genuinely bringing up a grievance so that it can be healed it's kind of like there's an industry around um symbolic grievance i think and that's not just canada that's like kind of the whole anglosphere right now and so i would want to bracket out um those kind of dis- dishonest interlocutors but from an existential point of view like yeah how do you reconcile what your governments have done and and honestly like it has to be layered thinking for me cuz you just uh, historical context the more you read about history um here's here's a good way of thinking about it <clears throat> the great stephen pinker was a consciousness raiser for me where he's like, it's not poverty that needs an explanation. It's wealth that needs an explanation, right? It's not war that needs an explanation. It's peace that needs an explanation. We in the West and in Canada have been kind of um, lulled into a, what I would call a not false sense of what the human homeostasis is, but uh, a unique and novel one that we think is the norm, Right. So in the Canadian context, it's not like reparation or apology or living together that needs in that uh, that's the norm. That's actually what needs the explanation, not not scarcity, not zero sum thinking, not group fighting, not like all of those things, you know, colonialism, uh, supremacy. Those are all the kind of human historical norms. And what needs the explanation is our ability to break out of those things, which Canada, again, imperfectly has done a lot better than almost any other culture or country now or in the history of humanity. And so I think um, my other podcast that I do is called The Liberal Soul. And one of the very important parts of that podcast is, uh, in in my opinion, is the liberal soul is historical context, understanding Mm. what has happened in the world. Like um, on this one piece of land that we live on, some horrible things have happened, but horrible things have happened on every piece of land. What has made anything different here is a lot of our ethos in rectifying that, not just saying, yeah, we win, whatever. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You go to a lot of places in the world. The dominant culture says, yeah, we win, whatever. Mm-hmm. Shut up. We don't care. And again, I think that it, it is that kind of pro fundamentally pro human ethos that, you know, <laughs> when I when I read about stories of residential schools, um, you know, when I watch that Gord Downey, like little mini animated documentary about them, like my heart just breaks, you know. I don't want that to be what happens. And I think the fact that I live in a country that fee- that reacts that way to um, si- the sins and, and the crimes of the government and um, the education system, as opposed to being like, yeah, whatever, that's not me. That That alone says, I think, almost everything about what is good about Canada is like the fact that I actually do feel horrible and remorse about that as opposed to, yeah, whatever, we win. That's <laughs> which, a great point. It, which that's is a- the human norm, again. That, yeah. The, the and- remorse is what 
needs the explanation, not the self-satisfied my group one. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about too, because not only is that like, so the 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 what we consider to be norm, the the feeling of guilt or the want to reconcile that. What you're saying is that's the new feeling, and not only is that the new feeling today, but that's really, as far as I can tell, with my um, very modest gra- uh, grasp on history, that's that's a new normal based on all of human history. If you look throughout human history, our history is a history of conquering and slavery, uh, forced change of religion. Um, I was just in Quebec City a few weeks ago, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be staring, uh, staying at the Fairmont Hotel. Mm. And they have a, a cool, um, like a, it's not very big, but cool, like it's in the basement. It's kind of museum-esque about some of the, the French history of that area of Canada because um, the, it's, it borders the Plains of Abraham where that, where that big battle happened. Um, but what was interesting, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about in this context, I can't remember, it's maybe King Louis. I think he's a French guy that they were talking about. They had a huge, a huge poster of him, and I was reading kind of his history. And what he was famous for was conquering nations and quote-unquote evangelizing them. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially the same thing as coming here to Canada as the white man and conquering the natives and putting them in schools to school out their culture. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. That is default. And how terrifying to think that that is likely default because it is likely human nature. Mm. Yeah, and, and I mean, I... I think that's more or less correct. I <laughs> One of the um, great intellectual things that has stimulated my life over the last number of years is pragmatism. And one of the core tenets of pragmatism is don't take your words as seriously as they can sound. So <laughs> uh, human nature, yes, I think humans are by kind of default very tribal. Um, we have a psychology that was evolved in a very different environment that modern humans find ourselves living in. So the the othering of people who look or sound different than you is like human 101, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, to that extent, I, I, I agree. I think it's human nature. And I mean, like even a casual or cursory view of history or many parts of the world today um, yeah. show that in spades, you know? So, I mean, there are a million tangents to go on about um, all the places in the world that don't respect other types of humans, let's say, or other groups of humans nearly as much as Canada does. And I have noticed that people who comment on how Canada doesn't honor other uh, uh, honor minorities enough don't have a lot to say about Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Iran. And honestly, like the charitable version of that to me is that they just don't know about it, right? It's more ignorance than malice. I always mm-hmm. attribute more ignorance than malice to the world. But at some point, you know, take the concept of privilege, which I think is a philosophically robust concept. Like so many uh, ideologues, the concept is applied when it's convenient for the ideologue and not as a thoroughgoing um philosophical principle, because if it was, along with male or white or 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 whatever wealth privilege you would include geographical and historical privilege where you're born and when you're born those are 
as equally, or I would say way more determinant of your level of privilege in the grand sphere of humanity. But for the most part, privilege is invoked as a wedge between groups of people and not as a intellectually integral thing to think about, you know? Yeah. And so the things like that. Pri- privilege is used for shame, right? Mm-hmm. And the you're right, the idea of privilege, one, accurate, two, maybe even helpful, but it is not helpful when it is used to shame. Um, if we stopped thinking about, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a straight white man who grew up in Canada at a relatively good economic time. I am, in fact, privileged. But mm-hmm. I don't take shame from that. That would be so unbelievably foolish. I think what's more constructive is to look at your privilege, understand that you have it, be thankful for it because it is an asset and we can just be frank and call it that. And then ask yourself, how can I use the position I've been put in to help the person next to me? If we started looking at privilege like that, as opposed to you should feel shame for how you were born, being white and straight, like there's not much that separates that from racism, in my opinion. Well, and I mean, like (laughs) someone of a different skin color than me and myself, who were both born in 1987, let's say, in Canada, um, might not have exactly the same levels of privilege, but we have a much overlapping sense of uh, anybody born in 1450 in France. Right? <laughs> so, so like, or or today in Syria, uh-huh. if you're a woman, right? Or so, a Muslim in China. So it's just, it's not, so many of these ideas in the modern academic left are, insufficiently interrogated intellectually because I would argue the point of them is that shame or that wedge. And so, you know, I don't take seriously so many people who aren't willing to take their own arguments all the way, right? <laughs> like, that's kind of like, um, that's a hallmark of intellectual honesty is being able to take your own arguments seriously to, to, uh, go over the um, implications, the logical implications of the thing that you're saying (laughs) thoroughly, right? Yeah, we'll talk about it, but what about these other ones? So anyway, that's not exactly about Canada, but it's kind of about Canada because all of these things are kind of about Canada, right? Because Canada is this historically unique, very kind of spread out, but tensely strong because of it spread out, like I, I think of Canada, you know, Canada is very regional. Um, its muscles are very spread out, but because of that, like the the tendons holding them together have been really well. Um, what's the metaphor? Very <laughs> worked out on, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a well tensile strained. strength to Canada, <laughs> and I think it's because it's paradoxically almost it's because it's kind of loose. Like the the way that Canada is loose allows its kind of more core things to work out. So, um, you know, political pejoratives aside, I look at Canada as a historical liberal success story um, in that, you know, small L liberal, um, not partisan political sense of um, respecting the fact that other people who are citizens of your country might not want to live the way that you want to live. And again, that's taken a big hit, but I would say that's taken a big hit more kind of officially as opposed to culturally uh, for much of many people in Canada, which was one of the main topics of the last time I was on the podcast with Dan talking about COVID. Um, Whereas, you know, 
um, Canada is, is able to take all types. You know, I remember one time sitting, I lived in South Korea for three and a half years and I had this epiphany moment. It was like four 30 in the morning, uh, at a, at a soup restaurant. And there was like these two friends, one was from Michigan, one was from Texas, one was Catholic, one was agnostic. And, um, and me who's, you know, probably the most accurate term would be atheist. Although I think that that loads the dice a bit, but anyway, but I had this epiphany moment where I was like, I had just read John Stuart Mill and I was like, you know what? We're arguing about all these things. And yet we live in a society that has room for all of us, right? Like the fabric <laughs> of the society that we live in actually takes all types. And that's mm-hmm. kind of amazing. And I, and I would apply that to Canada. Canada is the tensile strength of Canada is that it can take almost all types. It's, it is a pluralistic success story. Remember maybe even like five years ago, it's probably only five years ago where Canada and Canadians used to take pride in the fact that we were, you know, the metaphorical melting pot. Mm-hmm. Isn't it well, fascinating? Uh, well, mosaic. A mosaic. America yeah. is the melt- no, melting pot. I actually, I, and I actually think a mosaic is a is a better um, mm-hmm. a better metaphor for it because there are so many different types of people and so many cultures and religions, and I, I love that about our country because they are s- running into people who have entirely different experiences than you and then learning about their experiences and finding um, finding ways in which their experience, although brought about by different situations, is actually very similar to yours. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an incredibly fun thing to do. Um, why do you think we so rapidly switched from this, I, this celebration of mosaic to this, um, this idea that, this this fixation on the fact that we have past sins. How did we graduate so quickly? What do you? What's your take on oh, that? Oh, I mean, that's just speculation. I don't know. <laughs> I think part of it is um, media and journalism has changed um, a de- like a lot in in our adult lifetime. Um, this is a big rabbit hole about why. I think one reason is that. Um, there's diminishing returns in progressivism. Uh, once you solve a lot of the big battles, you bring a similar energy to uh, maybe objectively smaller battles, but you feel like I think that there's a whole generation of activists, let's say, who kind of look at a lot of the moral progress that was made in the 1960s in the United States, for example, with the Civil Rights Act and Martin Luther King, or maybe even a lot of like environmentalism stuff that happened in the 90s. And, and, and well, I mean, I think the EPA was in the 1970s. But I just think that they're post-World War II, well, including World War II and post, there's been like some really notable kind of, again, I would say liberal progressive movements um you think of like stonewall and and lgbt rights even in our lifetimes right like mm-hmm. those have all been so substantively important i think to the moral progress of our societies that those kind of things are i think that there's a certain nostalgia that activists today look on those things and want for themselves they want the excitement they want the thrill of being on the leading cutting edge of 
um, the next moral horizon for our for our culture. And I just think that the content of those things isn't as relevant. I dare say. I mean, I know that that could be very controversial. I just don't. The, the next horizon, I don't know, like, and it's hard to know what the next important horizon is, right? Like, we look back on the civil rights movement and be like, yeah, that's exactly what needed to happen. It's not as clear what exactly needs to happen right now for Canada to get better, right? Or or a Western society to get better. I mean, like, and I say that literally, like, why isn't, um, you know, we've got all this energy we have into the Pope visiting Canada, and I think that's you know, a newsworthy story, but like, how much do we know about um, any slave labor that goes into making our phones, right? That are ubiquitous in our culture. Like, how do we know the cobalt in our phones isn't from some child slave labor in Liberia or Sierra Leone? Do we know that? Like, and, and if, why isn't that like permeating some journalists, you know, moral outrage or, um, you know, the fact that there are arguably more slaves today than there ever have been, even if it's not legal, right? Like, it's almost kind of like that symbolic, the fact that it was legal was what was important rather than like the slaves existed, because Mm -hmm. obviously we had that today. And I just, you know, that's a broader point of, I think a lot of activism is very symbolic based, like, um, actually, on the ground, practically making things better for people beleaguered or victimized is a nice secondary thing to do if you can. But like you want to the journalist class, who I think is a more elite class now than it used to be, is just, you know, it's not the business model (laughs) to actually solve problems. And that's too bad because I think that is I think media and government is not emblematic of the values of our country. And I, I want to just point out, I'm not sanguine about like the fact that it's the liberal party. Like it could, I it could easily be the conservative party of Canada. That's also not um, <laughs> advocating the values that I might want for my country. Uh, and in fact, I would say that that has happened in my life, um, which is like a different topic. I, I think that conservatives are, um, on the back foot culturally right now in Canada. Um, I don't think that they have the hegemony anymore. But I think I'm old enough to remember the 90s when evangelical Christianity kind of did in culture. So um, my favorite TV show is South Park. And I think it's a great cultural bellwether because now all the calls for censorship of South Park are left of center, more woke type for problematic or insensitive portrayals. But when it started in the late 90s, all the calls for censorship were conservative evangelical Christian for having a gay dog on the show or a gay character or the fact that they were like being violent or something like that. And even before that, like it wasn't it wasn't left wing people who had a problem with like Mortal Kombat or video games. Right. So Mm. I just I put that out there to fully contextualize my opinions on this is that I don't consider myself right or left wing on any of these issues. I just, you know, because I, I'm old enough to remember when censorship was a tactic. To me, censorship is always the tactic used by the people who have power because unearthing new ideas can only disrupt the status quo, not promote it. So, so that, that, that's a, interesting. Okay. 
Um, we've actually talked about this a number of times on the podcast, this idea of like the swing of censorship or the swing mm-hmm. of like who is making all of the noise. Because you're right, growing up, it was the the evangelical kind of church. And um, if we were to generalize, probably a lot of those people were of a conservative ilk mm-hmm. who would have problems with South Park. But you're right. Um, by the way, South Park is an amazing show, but I don't think yeah. it's better than Rick and Morty. Just, <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Um, well, there's a but, longevity to it that I think has aided absolutely, it. absolutely. Um, it stood the test of time, one might mm-hmm. say. Um, but you're right. There has been a shift across to all of that pressure coming from the political left, and I want to I want to nuance that. I don't think it's mm. from. Um, also, don't want to be rude. I don't think it's from. <laughs> it's your um, podcast. You could be rude. <laughs> I don't think it's from responsible liberals. I don't think Mm -hmm. that pressure comes from the responsible liberal because I know a lot of who I would consider grown up and responsible liberals and they're very, very kind and caring and mostly want everyone to live their life. And uh, I would very much consider that myself in my, or that I would Mm -hmm. consider myself in that boat. Do you think the swing for censorship has gone to the left? Because at least in Western society, we are, at least in America, um, both countries being Canada and America are currently under liberal governments. Is it just a product? Is that swing just a product of who's in power? Because you mentioned power, right? Censorship is a tool of power. Is it because, is the censorship coming from the left simply because they hold the seat currently? Mm, I don't think it's as like politically based as that. I, I I do like I remember I was in university in the in the second half of the first decade of this millennium, so like 2005 to 2010, and I remember even then the seeds of what we might call um, wokeism around in some of my professors. Like my degrees in sociology, so I was probably exposed to some of these ideas a little bit earlier. So I actually think it's more through the academy than through the political sphere that these kind of censorious it's more it's an attitude like so when it comes to free speech or free expression um one of the great patron saints of it john stuart mill maybe the greatest said free speech is um only superficially i'm pretty sure this is john stuart mill free speech is only superficially written in laws unless it lives in the hearts of men it is nothing and so my whole approach to free expression is attitudinal, not as well as philosophic. I think it takes both to be integrated. And um, I've, as you know, in the last year and a half, I've read a lot of books on classical liberalism and the philosophy of it because it's been really resonant in my life and something I've lived without knowing I was living it. And so I've become to articulate it more. And one of the um, most important books there I read was called A Thousand Small Sanities by the Canadian writer Adam Gopnik, the subtitle which is The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. And he makes a point in that book that I intuitively knew but never really articulated, which is that liberal societies are actually quite messy. They're not clean. Like authoritarian regimes are Say what you will about them. They are clean. They're ordered. They're structured. You watch those North Koreans march and there isn't any sloppiness. And if there is, you're gone kind of thing, right? Whereas like, you know, these liberal democracies, we've got 
hippies, we've got used car salesmen, we've got eccentric people all over the board. And, you know, not everyone's on time and, um, you know, the the restaurants sell, serve all different kinds of food and try to, you know, get away with not paying their tax. Like, it's, it's, it's not a clean cut type of society. And that is extended to, you know, like the free speech. You're going to be exposed in a free society to lots of things that are uh, not of your taste, right? Not of your palate. Uh, dare I say you find offensive and Gopnik makes the point in the book like that is the cost of living in a liberal society and you kind of just got to suck it up (laughs) right like this is one element of liberalism I don't think is emphasized enough is like the hard-nosed version of it like (laughs) again this is controversial if you lose an election yeah too bad suck it up do better next time you know it's kind of like that, I, I don't know why that should be controversial, even though I, I, know, I, I, I acknowledge <laughs> that it is. <laughs> um, and so you apply that to the explosion of um, opinion, let's say, because of the Internet in the last two decades. And it's like a warp speed version of the printing press. And I just mm. think that most human beings are not well temperamented to being exposed to things they don't like. You know, we're just not. It's not really in our psychology or our DNA to be okay with things we don't like. And it actually takes, again, I would submit a very small L liberal education to really help people understand why it's better to put up with things you don't like for um, a more peaceful society on balance and a more free society on balance. You know, Thomas Paine said, whoever would not. Uh, defend the liberty of his enemy um, sets a raw uh, makes a precedent for a rod that will ultimately hit his own back. Yeah, uh, these kind of things, right? Like it's credibility. You defend free speech for people you don't like, so that when it's your turn, they'll do the same, right? Like it, and, and so you know, obviously that's the ideal, and it doesn't always work out that way. But given the kind of creatures we are, how fallible. And how wrong we easily are all the time, even about our strongest convictions. Indeed, in fact, in our strongest convictions often, um, it is that it, it really is only free speech that allows for that check and balance of our thing. And another way I've thought about it is that John Stuart Mill writes about the the, the truth has utility. It's not just like a platonic good in itself. It has utility. We actually improve if we know how things can really are, especially like most specifically in the scientific realm. Uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) I like the fact that I have a car (laughs) or a computer. Um, These are not manifestations of opinion. These are Mm -hmm. manifestations of trial and error. Yeah. And um, I can take all that on board. And so... I've, I, I've rabble. I forget what your original question was. But, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. I have a new one. Um, <laughs> okay. Do you think, so you met, you talked um, this idea, like the, an underappreciated, I, let me, let me see if I'm, I'm saying this correctly. An underappreciated okay. idea of liberalism is the ability to be hard nosed within it. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would describe um, a lot of, we'll call the modern day liberals as very, would use the word sensitive or soft. Right. Um, do you think that, do you think that comes from 
our society's aversion to pain in general right now. Um, I, I hearken back to something as simple as um, the participation trophy, right? Mm-hmm. You haven't actually earned anything, but we don't want you to feel bad. So here's a reward anyway. That sets a, a terrible precedent for you don't actually have to earn something and you don't have to engage with discomfort to succeed. Do mm-hmm. you think we suffer from overall, and I'm not just talking on the left, I'm talking as a society overall, a, do you think we suffer from a, um, a fear of discomfort? And if so, how do you think that's playing out further in our society? Well, yeah, I mean, I just think that's a perennial challenge for any kind of rich and wealthy um, cohort of humans, because <laughs> who wants to live in discomfort? And pain or suffering, even mild psychological sensitive ones, you know, I have this little kind of cheeky quip I say is that human beings work really hard to not have to work hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. uh, and, and as far as like things like participation trophies, which was kind of like um, becoming dominant in the, the 90s, the decade we were kids in, I understand the impulse and the sentiment, right? I work with kids and you don't like it's not fun feeling like someone feels bad because they're not as good as someone at something right like i don't like how i feel when i see a kid be sad <laughs> you know like it's a very first order human impulse to if you have like compassion in your bones you don't want to see people hurt and suffer and i i just think again this is an educational thing like you are sacrificing the betterment of the future to make now easier when you like uh, to me, a participation trophy is, you know, the equivalent of like, um, eating junk food instead of exercising. Like it is better now it is right. Like there's, it's not like it doesn't have some sort of good attached to it, but I think well-intentioned as that self-esteem participation movement of the nineties was, it kind of was missing the thinking part of mm-hmm. it had the feeling part. I would say this, our culture is really good at the feeling part of human life right now and not as good at the thinking part of human life right now. And I also don't want to like valorize the past or romanticize it. I don't know if there's ever been an era where it's been a dominant humans have been thinking more than feeling. I would say, I, I would say not, but there have been pockets of, and some of those pockets have allowed us to have the societies that we've had, and they've been bequeathed to us. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, news media and academics and a lot of the elite institutions are concerned with taking care of people more than educating or inspiring them. I think that's also, like, part of the business model of managerial and bureaucratic institutions. Like, I think it can't really be any other way for those institutions to kind of justify their existence than taking care of people who can't take care of themselves, so to speak. And obviously there are people like that who need help. There are people in the world who need that kind of help and I'm not uncompassionate to them. I just think it's been overextended because, um, we haven't really had a precedent like this in history of like, you know, 70 plus years of no war of <laughs> obesity being a bigger problem than starvation. Right. Again, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's that paradigm shift. It's not 
it's not hunger that needs an explanation. It's fullness. Yeah. <laughs> right? you know? Yeah, and absolutely. I think Eric Weinstein calls this 75-year period or whatever since World War II the big sleep. Um, we've just been conditioned. You know, and I, I, don't val- I don't think I'm particularly insightful for noticing this or that I'm better than anyone because I think about it this way. I just think we don't think about it this way. Um, and that's why I think gratitude and um, being like you said, so we've talked actually, so you've been on my podcast, the liberal soul before and we talked about music and my favorite, we talked about my favorite song, which is big casino by Jimmy world. And the whole ethos of that song lyrically is a being grateful for the, the, the dare I say privilege, the, the good spot you've been born into, but then using that to make it better. And, and that's, you know, the point of life is to be a good ancestor, I think. And uh, it's interesting, you know, I'm in my mid thirties now and I feel finally at the point where it's like my turn to carry the baton for freedom, humanism, expression, um, literature, not that I write, but like I talk about books a lot and I, and this isn't something we've really touched on much today, but like to me, fiction is a massive piece of the developing liberal society because it allows you to extend cognitive and emotional empathy to people who erstwhile would never be in your purview, right? Like Charles Dickens to me is all of his personal foibles aside, which are not small, um, a huge beacon, a Promethean in liberal history because he shed light on what the underclass in the factories were living through, right? Like um, Gopnik says, um, uh, progressives forget about the 20th century, but conservatives forget about the 19th. And uh, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. just that underclass, but not in like a expose way, but in a novel, right? Like in a way that you can empathize with those people. So that's one of the reasons to me Dickens is imperishable as a as a as part of the liberal project i would say and then again like i know that this can be kind of confusing because i use the word liberal in its more original intent and that's there's not a different, really how it's there's used. a different liberal yeah. than the liberal party they're two different oh yeah things. the liberal party like you know who i would say it to make a word to differentiate are more like progressive um than liberal I, I have a note here that illiberalism knows no side of the political aisle. Mm-hmm. It can be on both easily and often is because mm-hmm. power is more enticing than <laughs> giving up part of your share for someone else, mm-hmm. which is kind of the deal of living in the in the cultures and societies that we do live in. Uh, so, but again, I refuse to cede the word. I think it has too much grandeur and has too much of a tradition for me to let it be applied to, you know, people who would venerate Castro, for example. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, sorry, not on my watch. Uh, <laughs> that's not what that word means. It wasn't its original intent. And uh, I refuse to cede it because I think it's too important um, as a concept. And I have spent the last year and a half really diving into like Karl Popper and George Orwell and John Stuart Mill and... Um, you know, some of these great and modern people, Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan Rausch, like people who write really insightfully on our psychology and our philosophy around um, 
the liberal societies that we live in. Mm-hmm. You know, Canada being, I think, example one mm-hmm. in a manifest sense. Yeah. Isn't isn't fiction such a cool thing? Because fiction is the purpose of fiction is to use art and story to tell truth. And when you do it that way, you do it in a way that you can communicate truth without people getting caught up necessarily mm-hmm. in some of the modern day catches that we all encounter, like which side of the political aisle you sit on or mm-hmm. the, those sorts of things, you know? I love that you can use story and all the, all the best stories you... Um, you can tell you can tell when a story is good because it stands the test of time, right? When you you mm-hmm. see books come out of the woodwork from hundreds of years ago, um, they have value because they've stuck around that long, and it's usually because they communicate some sort of truth that we aren't necessarily as a society thinking about, and it becomes challenging because you learn from it. Would mm-hmm. you say that's an accurate representation? Well, yeah, I mean that's totally a legitimate way to think about fiction and I often do. You know, I think fiction is awesome because it can be many things. Like it can be moral experiment, like and moral philosophy. You know, we could crime and punishment is so amazing because you can kind of feel like what you can explore the psychology of a murderer without having to be a murderer, right? Like yeah. you can go experience that, you know, hundreds of pages of the disillusionment of Raskolnikov and crime and punishment without anyone actually getting hurt, right? So it's moral philosophy, it's moral experiments, it's uh, psychological experiments. Um, it David likes to say narrative gets under your sense of ego and reason. And it like that's why it's a hearts and minds approach, right? Um, Dickens wasn't lecturing the upper class per se in his novels. He was just exposing what the underclass was like and and leaving the good-heartedness of people to themselves. And then that was quite insightful for that culture in that time, right? So it does a lot of things. It entertains, it um, inspires, it makes you think, it it um, gives you lots of fodder to talk about as, as has been proven. Dave and I have like 80 plus episodes on really true fiction about that. And yeah, I think it's like, to me, liberalism is a humanism, which means that you need art because that's like art is a fundamental expression of, you know, the human condition and people's place in it. This is one of the reasons I love um, liberalism is that it's one of the only political philosophies I've ever come across that is like explicitly intent on existing so that we can go be non-political, so that we can go be artistic and existential and creative. And as Gopnik puts it, um, liberals love laws so they can go do things that are unlawlike, and they love freedom so they can go discover what it is to be alive, right? And that's kind of my guiding ethos is that all of these things are integrated, but um, politics exists to serve the private, human, existential lives of people, not the other way around. Mm. Mm. And fiction fiction certainly contributes to that, not in the least which because you understand people who are not like you. Understand people who are not like you. Yeah, that's awesome. So have you read... um, you mentioned Orwell. Have you read 1984? 
I'm sure you yeah, have. I've read it, I don't know, maybe five times. I read it two years ago again as a potential episode on Really True Fiction. We'll do it someday. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's kind of fresh in my mind. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's just like the, like, I have this problem, and I consider it a problem. When when things become very popular, I don't want mm-hmm. anything to do with them. <laughs> well, 1984 so, was popular, like, almost after, like, it, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. But so, like, I'm, um, how many years ago was that written? Oh, I think it was published in, I think it was published the year he died. And I think he died in 1950. Right. Maybe 1949. So like around there. It was, it was either published 1948 to 1950, I would say, somewhere in there. Yeah. So obviously it was probably uh, – it had a wave of popularity back then. But um, mm-hmm. everyone on um, – we'll call it my side of the political aisle, uh, aisle was going mm-hmm. on about 1984. And I think for that reason I have purposely ignored it because I just find it <laughs> annoying when everyone's like, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. Um, but would you would you say it's worth a read? And if so, why? Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely worth a read. Um, it's worth a read for all of the kind of like marquee reasons of insight into the psychology of tyranny as well as the people who go along with it. There's some really thunderously insightful portrayals of people who – there's this element in the book called the two-minute hate where everyone has to stand up and ex- – say the political leader that they hate and they yell and they scream. And like the narrator shows like just the vitriol and the excitement and the rabid energy that some people are showing to what they hate. And it's like all a facade. It's just to show that you are someone who will be like this. You know, it's very Soviet in that sense. Um, But like, I would say for all the reasons you should read it, to bolster a previous point I just like I, that I just made, Orwell is very tender in 1984 with the quiet things that no one ever really talks about that make up a lot of life. So a lot of the kind of minuscule existential things that are not important to the party, let's say. So like there's some there's a great little passage of him watching um, a, a woman in her 40s hang up laundry, something as simple as that. And he narrates the kind of like simple beauty of this hardworking woman who's taking care of her family and isn't conventionally attractive, but something in watching her go about her business and her work ethic impresses the protagonist in a kind of um, soft spoken manner. And I think most people can relate to a quiet moment where we notice something in the world. And there's like a number of these things, whether it's like the flowers that he talks about in 1984 or, you know, what the clothes Julia is wearing. These kind of little things that are in between the grand political, you know, insights of the novel that, again, are – my point is that liberalism exists so that we can go notice the people who work hard and the flowers and the clothes and the music and the things that have nothing to do with politics that are actually what make life worth living. 
Mm. Uh, so that <laughs> yeah. that's actually, I think, one of the subconscious reasons people are drawn to 1984 is that Orwell actually notices a lot of those little things. Yeah, isn't it isn't it unfortunate? Um, you know, as far as I can tell, we only get to do this thing once and this thing being life, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't it unfortunate how much time we spend caught up in um, over you know over the past couple years, certainly politics, but before that in, you know, quote, unquote, the grind or, you know, always striving to get somewhere and yet forgetting to notice where we are and forgetting how much beauty is encapsulated in the very moment that we're in. It's mm. it's unfortunate that our, I think it's unfortunate our society favors the one or praises the one who is always preoccupied, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> There's a difference between, I think, engaging in what you feel is a meaningful life project versus like what you say, the daily grind or um, social comparison, let's say. I actually had this epiphany when I was thinking of going to be talking to you about this stuff is like, I've, I've talked a lot about like, what are some of the personality traits of what I call the liberal soul, which is the name of the podcast, right? And one of the things I'd never really thought about is that because the emphasis of the liberal soul is on curiosity and discovery and exploration, you actually allied social status and social comparison because anyone who would otherwise be better than you at something who could potentially make your ego feel small is actually uh, ipso facto a teacher in this mindset whether or not they're doing it on purpose. So a good example of that is that like I play guitar, um, but I'm, you know, I'm far from an expert. I'm a competent guitar player, but sometimes I'll go to an open mic night, pretty confident, you know, and then you see someone who's just way better than me, right? Like just way better than me at guitar. And like, that's like moment 101 for my ego to kick in and feel diminished or, um, the comparative, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm not as good as this person, so why am I even here kind of thing. But when I've started adopting, you know, this mindset of um, exploration and discovery, instead of feeling exposed or vulnerable by someone else's talent, I just noticed what kind of chords they're playing. What chord was that? How did they do that? What riff is that? Is that that in the key of C? I think that was. You know, you just start like paying attention to the kind of X's and O's of the project more than the vulnerability of my ego. Mm. And and I've started adopting that so much now. It's not even I don't even really have to choose to do it anymore. (laughs) You know, like it just kind of is the natural default. Um, And I do this with Frisbee. Oh, you throw so well. How'd you do that? Okay, your wrist is like that as opposed to I can't throw like that. Um, and I think you, the the sorry. emphasis the emphasis on exploration and curiosity and discovery as the the absolute base of the pillar of the liberal soul I think is um, very mentally and emotionally freeing from those ego mm-hmm. scars. Mm-hmm. Have you tried frisbee golf? Yeah, yeah, I have. I'm also not that great at that. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at it, but my father in law. Got me into it, and I'm slightly bad or slightly better at it than regular golf. So I have decided mm-hmm. I far prefer it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wanted to ask you though, because you're so, um, you're obviously so well-read. What are you reading currently? <laughs> uh, I'm reading a Dickens novel I've never read called Our Mutual Friend because I need, to, I want to read all of his books. But lately, I think the book that made the most impact on me, I actually did two episodes on, is called The Constitution of Knowledge by the writer Jonathan Rauch. The subtitle is um, A Defense of Truth. And in that book, he argues that knowledge or um, what, you know, in philosophy, it's called epistemology, how we know what we know, um, is <laughs> kind of more of an activity than it is a static reality. Um, and he makes the point that we kind of, he uses the term the reality-based community, kind of through trial and error and discussion gets to decide what counts as knowledge. And he talks about journalism and government and law and academia as the four main pillars that have historically done that in a liberal society. And one of his concerns is that those things aren't as robust as they used to be. And so like in a liberal society, you can um, talk about homeopathy or astrology and no one's going to throw you in jail but the reality-based community doesn't have to take you seriously if your arguments don't have uh, verisimilitude with the data and evidence collected through our best methods of science, that yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, it's a great book. It's very enlightening. It's written by a modern person, so you don't – like all of the examples are modern, which is so awesome because even Hopefully. though I love John Stuart Mill, his examples are, you know, of his era, so he's like – I don't know. There's a great passage of him defending the Mormons in Utah, which is entertaining, <laughs> but maybe not quite as like on the cusp of our cultural zeitgeist right now as, as it was. So that's another thing. Like I started this podcast because I wanted to make the classic arguments of liberalism modern and in our own context and in our own situations, which I think we talked about when we talked about COVID a lot in the previous episode that I was on, you know, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, the constitution of knowledge, because again, I, I mentioned this word near the beginning. I'm also, I would consider myself a pragmatist in the, in the tradition of William James and Charles Sanders Peirce, the great American philosophy of like, um, of all the words I use in language are like about as strong as they need to be to communicate in this. And like, yeah, we need dictionary definitions of words, but that's like, no, nothing final is in vocabulary because the world is always evolving and changing and words take on new meanings and new senses. So language is contingent, but that doesn't make it useless. Let's say that. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating that the definitions of words change over the course mm -hmm. of the, the history of the language? That, that to me is so weird. Like, I, I don't understand what drives the idea that you would take one word that has a meaning and then down the line change that meaning. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, look, all of the things I've talked about today, I'm not an expert in. <laughs> Caveat, yeah. right? Yeah, like, no, no. To me with language, it's that words are downstream from psychological intent. And so um, psychological intent is very hard to parse because language is imperfect in that. And so it's easier to use an existing word for 
a different way you're thinking about something than to figure out what that new word would be for that different way you're thinking about something. That's a hypothesis I would have is that words take on new senses because <laughs> the human brain is very complicated even to ourselves. We're not always sure of our psychological intent, but there are words already in the language that we can use that kind of feel like they work for what we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we do our best. <laughs> Don't we? Well, at least we try to. Yeah. Um, so speaking of classical liber- liberalism, um, mm-hmm. have you read Don't Burn This Book by um, you know, I, Dave Rubin? I haven't. I, was, I have been in the past a, a big Dave Rubin listener and, and YouTube watcher. I haven't very much in the last couple of years. Um, well, he's changed his tune quite a bit. Yes, he has. Yeah. So what do you make of him? Uh, I mean, I just, I, I think, I, I don't know for one thing because I haven't listened a lot lately, but he kind of, I feel like he might be a, um, a good example of what is now called audience capture. He found a new audience and, um, when that happens, it feels really good. And when that moment of when you might disagree with your new friends, do you bring it up? Right. Like, uh, I think it was Thomas Paine again, who said that, um, it's easy to disagree with your enemies. What's hard is disagreeing with your friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I just think it's not always a good business model to disagree with the people who are paying you. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, uh, was it Upton Sinclair said, it's hard to get a man to see a point if his wallet depends on him not seeing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would take I don't want to like attribute something so base to a person, but you know, these incentives matter. Like economics matters. This is something I think hasn't been well educated into people in universities and left of center type of people. Like I would have considered myself in universities. Like, um, like money is really important and and how money works is not well taught, I think, because I think a lot of the professors are not educated in money either, right? right. And I say that as someone I feel very uneducated in how money works, but psychologically and, and ph- philosophically, I have come to understand why it is what it is, right? Like it's like the, compl- the complexity of human behavior is kind of – impossible without money mm-hmm. with or without um money as a stand-in for value incentive to improve your lot yeah yeah right absolutely um i would i think you should i'm i think you should read don't burn this book simply because i'm curious to hear because you would consider yourself at least um to some extent and i, I think this is fair to say left of center and i would obviously consider myself right of center as someone who comes from the right, it was an absolutely wonderful introduction to some of the ideas of what the left might believe in. Mm-hmm. And it it took a lot of the beautiful stuff that we talked about today and kind of pulled that away from um, what us on the right get kind of up in arms about from, you know, our, our extreme progressive political left that, you know, we find... Um, yeah at the very least annoying, but sometimes difficult to deal with, you know? Um, I had no mm-hmm. idea how much I agreed with liberal ideas until I read that book. So it would be interesting for you to read it and us to have another conversation about it. Yeah. Um, to hear your perspective of that book from the left, because I consider it a wonderful bridge to new ideas, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm probably not as left of center as um, someone who would identify themselves as left of center is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I I think I'm pretty actually low key on most um, political issues. I actually think that almost every political issue is made more difficult by making it high key, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and very politicized and moralized. Yeah. yeah um, but I, yeah, I mean, that would be fun to read that book. And maybe we could do like a crossover episode of the liberal soul and the Canadian story. Absolutely. For, you know, that'd be, absolutely. I think that'd be really fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm always up to do any book on the, yeah, I these think, topics. I think uh, something um, <clears throat> you kind of said, you kind of said making something a political issue just simply makes it more complicated. I absolutely believe that. And I wanted to take a moment to <clears throat> communicate an idea that I've been thinking about because you uh, you also said you would consider yourself like quite a, you know, less left of center than maybe what I might view you as or whatever. Mm. I think taking the idea that you make things more complicated by making them a political issue, we, and I'm speaking as a country mm-hmm. and maybe, uh, and, and I guess in larger as a Western society, need to stop making political issues out of individuals. We need mm-hmm. to stop looking at an individual for where they might sit on the political spectrum. And this is something that I've been highly guilty of. And I, I'm realizing the <laughs> the folly in my ways um, and go back to judging people just on moral character because left and right aren't prerequisites for morality. They're just mm-hmm. simply um, catch-alls for certain trends of ideas. And really, that's kind of unimportant when you're judging people based on their individual um, morality. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind yeah. of wanted to drop that in there and and say that before we take off. But I do have mm-hmm. one more question before we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so you we, we talked about what you love about Canada at the beginning of this podcast. I want you <clears throat> to look into the future, maybe the next five years, and speculate what direction you would like to see our country go and and maybe posit how we may begin going about that journey. What is what is a beautiful future of Canada to you? <laughs> well, ironically, given our saying of it shouldn't be political, um, one thing I'd like to see is a much more talented and robust opposition party in this country. I cannot believe how... It seems to me, and I'm an outsider and I don't really know these things, but what could the Conservative Party of Canada more want as fodder for them to get elected? And why can't they do it? Like, <laughs> what more does the Liberal Party of Canada and Trudeau have to do to make them the most slam dunk, obvious choice for this country? And they still can't sell themselves to this country. You know, I think they need some massive cohesion and PR work. So I'd like to see that happen <laughs> for for Canada, not even not even to get, have them be the governing party, but just like a country is stronger if it has a strong opposition party. And I've been kind of blown away at how anemic the Conservative Party of Canada has seemed over the pandemic and a little bit before. So I'd like to see that for one thing. Um, and maybe an additional um, political point is that I'd like to see the Liberal Party become a little bit more hard-nosed about its own leadership this is one thing I haven't heard very much talked about, but like for how long are the liberals going to – the liberal party going to like roll the dice on this Trudeau guy before he becomes a liability to their entire project? And 
you know, I think that's something that probably is being talked a lot about now behind closed doors in those if with the MPs of that party. But like, it's just like, I don't think it, I think that there's a lot of probably dissent within that party that gets squashed from the top. And I don't know how sustainable that will be either. So I'd like to see those, those two things I think are important for Canada politically. Um, but for the future of the country, um, I guess this isn't a PSA exactly, but it's like one of the great things that I have commandeered from learning about liberalism is that problems never end. When you actually solve a problem, there will emerge new problems that you hadn't thought about, and then you have to solve those problems. So I think getting jettisoning the idea that we're ever going to reach some sort of good end of problem solving all problems are solved we did it we 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 became moral and now we're moral kind of thing like that's just to me the wrong paradigm to be operating in <clears throat> it's that i think we need to be more okay with the fact that there's always going to be problems and get back to solving them versus um that kind of symbolic thing that I talked about earlier of like thumping our chests at what a big problem, whatever, take X of Canadian history or Canadian problematic figures, whatever, right? Like um, it's low cost to demonize the past. It's high cost to fix problems now and still being okay with the fact that there's going to be new ones. So I think that would be something I would hope for and that's the pragmatist in me is like pragmatists say what is the cash value of this idea how is this going to help real people in the world um how do we in aristotelian terms uh, improve our eudaimonia our good life through these decisions as opposed to a billboard or a commercial or uh as they say what's your brand you know i am mm -hmm. distasteful of all of these things mm -hmm. and uh i think that's what i'd like to see and i'd actually in a similar way, I'd, I would leave with this sentiment. Um, and it's kind of like what we do in the meantime of when we're involved in these political and um, petty fights or or improvements that we're trying to make in the world. And it's like, so when I did The Open Society and Its Enemies, I did a four-part series. It's the book by Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science and liberalism. And he was quoting Pericles, who is um, kind of considered the grandest figure in Athenian democracy, like the longest lasting, most tolerant leader at the height of Athenian democracy. So he's kind of, and there's this great, I think it was Cicero wrote down this great speech that he made. And it's an awesome speech about kind of like really condensing a lot of liberal philosophy into a, to a popular speech. But the, the line of it that stuck out with me the most is, we do not harass or get angry at our neighbor when they choose to go their own way, like bragging about the temperament of people of Athens. And so I read that and I was like, man, that is the ethos animating the liberal soul from Pericles all the way to Fleetwood Mac. You know, we do not get angry when our neighbor decides to go their own way. And contrast that to you know, the definition of a Puritan, someone, <laughs> the person who's angry that or worried that maybe somewhere, someone somewhere is having a good time. 
<laughs> you know, those are two extremes. But how I, dare I, they? <laughs> yeah, like um, inculcating in young people the attitude that we do not get butt hurt when our uh, neighbor chooses to go their own way, and um, we can go our own way. <laughs> it's really only liberal societies that that can happen in and and we dare not take it for granted lest we lose it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Luke, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. Um, you mentioned two podcasts over the mm -hmm. course of this, uh, this little chat. Where do people find you? What are they called? Just one more time. And where do, where mm -hmm. do they find you? So, uh, really true fiction is the one I do with David Parker, the, um, otherwise host of this podcast on right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can find that on all the podcasting apps of your choice, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Amazon. If you're from India, you can listen on Ghana. <laughs> and uh, there's a Facebook group. You can send an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. Um, if you search it, you can get the Libsyn link as well on the internet. And then the other one that I do, I'm the only host, but I have guests on regularly. And in fact, you can hear Zach Gerber as a guest on one of the episodes. It's called The Liberal Soul. Um, which is an integrated and holistic take on what it is to be a liberally minded person in the world, which includes art and philosophy and politics and all of the above. And again, that's on all the major podcasting apps of your choice. Um, I, there's a Facebook group you can follow on Twitter at Liberal Soul 87. I post new episodes there and uh, the emails, the Liberal Soul 87 at gmail.com. And I mean, again, it's like this is all a conversation. It's the platonic dialogue socrates and theotetus let us meet here tomorrow theotetus to discuss it more you know the ongoing intelligent conversation is one of the most important high order pleasures in life so i would love to hear from anyone about anything absolutely well thanks man i appreciate yeah. you being here and uh we look forward to having you back shortly to continue the conversation thanks for having me Again, thanks for first first and a half time caller. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the CAD Story. That's the C A D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great our country.